Thank you all for being here. Um, there are full bios for our speakers in your program. And um, I just want to say a couple of words that, about what they're going to be speaking about today. They're, the title of their talk is Fighting Cancer with the Mind. And I think um, one of the things that's really exciting about the work that's taking place here at Harvard is the way that interdisciplinary work is advancing really important things in the field. But I imagine every person in this room has also personally been affected by cancer in some way. And I just want to say thank you to our speakers for the work that they're doing, and thank you for the work that they're going to be sharing with us this morning. So without further ado, Drs. Jacobs and Drs. Pearl. Thank you. Uh, so this is a lot more people than the 15-student seminar that we teach. Uh, so it's a little bit of a different forum for us. Uh, but thank you for coming and spending your morning with us. We wanted to start by asking you all this question. Do psychological factors influence cancer survival? If you believe this, raise your hand. Oh, a lot of hands. Uh, that really is the central question in the course that Jamie and I teach. Good morning. So I want to get started by mentioning that when I Googled this week fighting cancer with the mind, a few things came up. Things like mind over medicine and the six natural steps to curing your cancer from within. And can you imagine your cancer away? But something else came up that you might have seen as well. Alex Trebek sharing his experience with his what he calls fight with cancer, with stage four pancreatic cancer. And the word fighting with cancer might not resonate with, with all of us here in the room, but let's go with this for a second. And Alex Trebek shared with us that he has had some really amazing results. And in an NPR story, they talk about his being very open in sharing his emotional struggles. He says, I'm used to dealing with pain, but what I'm not used to dealing with are the surges that come on suddenly of deep, deep sadness. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. I'm a psychologist at Mass General Cancer Center. Bill is a psychiatrist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And we are part of the cancer care team. We practice what's called psychosocial oncology or psychooncology. It's the intersection of psychology and social factors in the cancer experience. And we know that this has become more and more important for people. And we've had sort of a cultural shift in how we think about fighting cancer. We used to think of fighting cancer with physical treatments, chemotherapy and radiation, and now immunotherapy and tremendous medical advances. And while those are all crucial, we've actually also shifted now into thinking about treating the whole person. So we need to recognize that um, the mind is a crucial part of that. And so we come in with oncologists and palliative care physicians and nurse practitioners and social workers to try to help people come at this from a more holistic approach. And I'll give you a few examples of the things that we do. So we might treat someone who has lifelong depression, who has now had sort of an exacerbation of that depression in the context of cancer diagnosis. We may also treat the person who has never had anxiety before in her life, 
but now has panic attacks at the thought of thinking of herself in a closed, confined space during radiation treatment. And Bill might come at this from prescribing a medication that could help with anxiety management. I might approach this by teaching relaxation skills and cognitive behavioral therapy, which is our gold standard evidence-based therapy for anxiety management. And we work together with the oncology team to figure out how to get that person to radiation, where she might otherwise not be able to get a life-saving therapy if her anxiety got in the way of that, or that she would really suffer through it, which is unnecessary because of how many tools we have now for anxiety treatment. We also might help the person who is um, a family or a friend of someone coping with cancer, and we might help them in managing the stress and burden of that. As our, our introducer mentioned, so many of us have been affected by cancer either personally, maybe in the past or even now, or have a family or friend or loved one that they've helped through this process. So we understand that this cancer doesn't just affect the person who has it. There's a whole circle of people around them. We also might help a parent coping with cancer and teach them effective communication skills to talk to their children and about you know, what to expect. Um, we also might help couples who are having difficulty managing end-of-life discussions. And we might help them figure out what type of care someone might want and how we communicate that to our loved ones when we might reach a point that we can no longer make those decisions or express that. And we also help the person who has finished treatment but who really is having difficulty getting back to their lives and feeling like themselves again, even though everyone around them is telling them, you should be happy and celebrate and you're cured, and they just really aren't feeling like that because they're still struggling emotionally and physically with a lot of symptoms. While we do this one-on-one -on -one with patients, we also do this mostly, Bill and I, in the context of research. We are clinician scientists, so we try to develop therapies and tools or test evidence-based therapies in the context of cancer that we know to be helpful to improve patient-reported outcomes, psychosocial well-being on a broader level. And we do this collaboratively with the oncology care team. So I want to return for a moment back to something else that Alex Trebek said. He said, I've got a lot of love out there headed in my direction and a lot of prayer, and I will never, ever minimize the value of that. Now, this makes me think of two things. On the one hand, it makes me think, wow, he really feels this outpouring of love and affection from people all around the world, and that perception of social support has enabled him to have more hope, feel motivated in his, what he calls, fight against cancer. And we have a lot of evidence for this, actually, that the perception of social support can influence cancer outcomes and other health outcomes in general. But something else he says about feeling positive energy directed towards him and how he feels that this has helped his chemotherapy and that his response to treatment goes beyond his chemo, that makes me think of something else. That makes me think a little bit more of the stories that we sometimes hear about people who have cured their cancer with alternative therapies or medicine. Things like plant-based diets and herbal remedies, vitamins and minerals, or spiritual practices and guided meditation. We don't have as much evidence for that, unfortunately. But it turns out that in a study last year by the American Society of Clinical Oncology, 40% of Americans believed that they could cure cancer with alternative therapy alone. This is somewhat alarming to the medical and scientific communities because we know, okay, I guess I'm, I guess I'm among those. Um, we know that people who reject mainstream medicine in favor of alternative therapies have a much higher death rate. 
they're actually on average 2.5 times more likely to die from common cancers that could be cured with the tremendous medical treatments that we have. But there is a role for sometimes for these therapies as a complement, as an, as an adjunct to standard treatment. And this is a difference that I would really like to accentuate for you all that some of you might know. But complementary and alternative medicine often get lumped together, but they're different. Complementary is medicine that is in addition to, or therapies in addition to mainstream medicine, whereas alternative is in place of. So the complementary approaches, like acupuncture to manage symptoms such as nausea and pain during chemotherapy, we actually have good evidence for that. But enzyme therapy and oxygen therapy and diet and vitamins and minerals in place of those treatments, we don't have good evidence for. Nonetheless, we now understand that there might be a role for these complementary therapies as we approach fighting cancer from more than just the body and including the mind. And although we don't want to reject mainstream medicine in favor of alternative therapy because this can be dangerous and often misguided, we also don't want to deny the role of the mind in cancer and in the cancer experience. And that's what psychosocial oncology aims to do. We have we have a long ways to go in terms of recognizing this as part of standard care, but we have come a long way, and Bill's gonna tell you more about how we got here. So our, our cultural beliefs that the mind and cancer are linked really started about 2,000 years ago uh, with the ancient Greeks. Uh, the ancient Greeks believed that illnesses were the result of an imbalance in the four vital bodily fluids, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And both cancer and melancholia, or depression, had the same underlying cause, an excess of black bile. So this was the first time it was established that there could be a link between cancer and mental states. Fast forwarding about a millennium and a half, maybe a little bit more, uh, in the mid-1800s, physicians started to observe that some illnesses could be treated with the power of suggestion. Jean-Martin Charcot, who was a neurologist, would use post-hypnotic suggestion to cure cases of hysteria, which is the fainting woman in the painting, uh, or things that we would call now conversion disorders, where somebody suddenly loses function of their arm, leg, or even their vision. This first established that psychological treatments might help with illnesses. Freud took this idea a little bit further in his conceptualization of the mind and claimed that unconscious conflicts could actually manifest themselves physically as illnesses, which now established that there could be psychological causes of illness. About 20 or 30 years later, the concept of stress really developed. Soldiers were coming back from World War I appearing like they had head injuries or neurological disorders and were thought to be, even though they didn't have any bodily injuries, uh, and were felt to be shell-shocked, that the noise and stress of being on the front could actually physically affect somebody, that this stress of going to war could physically affect their bodies. Walter Cannon, who was a physiologist, was at the same time working on this in the lab with animal models. Uh, he would stress animals and find that there are actually bodily changes that could then lead to disease states. He also discovered the flight or fight response, uh, which we'll hear a little bit about later, uh, which is our acute reaction to stress. And he was able to pinpoint a anatomical basis for this with a sympathetic nervous system. So all of this now started to establish that stress could lead to illness. In the 1930s, psychosomatic medicine emerged and still is a field today, even though it's called consult liaison psychiatry. 
Uh, but there were two schools. There was a European school led by Franz Alexander uh, who felt that uh, specific illnesses could be the result of chronic repressed emotions. There was also an American school led by Flanders Dunbar who believed that certain personality factors could lead to illness. Flanders Dunbar founded the American Psychosomatic Society in 1942, which is still very active today. The concept that personality factors could lead to disease further developed into the concept of personality types. And you've all heard about personality types A and personality types B. Uh, in the 1950s, two psychologists, Friedman and Rosen, uh, did research that demonstrated that personality type B could be linked to heart disease. And by the 1970s, that really became part of popular culture. However, now looking back on that research, uh, it was funded by the tobacco industry uh, with the goal of producing some alternative facts to what was uh, the evidence developing now that smoking could lead to heart disease and cancer. Uh, also around the same time, uh, the concept of a cancer personality emerged, that people who chronically repress their emotions were always uh, stressed out, were more likely to develop cancer, and that you could control that. In the 1960s, there was a major shift in the paradigm of how we think about medicine, both in medicine and psychiatry. Uh, Avery Weissman, who was a psychiatrist at MGH, started to become interested in how people cope with cancer and death. So instead of approaching this as psychiatry is going to figure out the cause or actually cure somebody's cancer, psychiatry is now going to respond to people who already have cancer to help them through the cancer. Uh, and a similar thing was happening with medicine uh, because the first hospice opened in 1967 in the UK, that medicine now was not only focusing on cure, but it was also helping people get through experiences of already having the illnesses, and that was the beginning of palliative care. So this brings us to the 70s. Uh, so I'm going to show you a clip from Love Story. Uh, you all know the story of that. So it's a Harvard student, Oliver, who falls in love with a Radcliffe student, Jenny. They get married. They're trying to have a baby. They go to the doctor to get worked up for infertility. Uh, and this is a clip of, of Walter at the physician's office. Whose fault it is? I wouldn't use the word fault, Oliver. OK. Put it your way. Two 24-year-olds can't seem to make a baby. Obviously, one of us is malfunctioning. Who? Jenny. All right, then we'll adopt kids. Oliver, the problem is more serious than that. Jenny is very sick. Define very sick. She's dying. That's impossible. I'm sorry to have to tell you this. That's impossible. Well, it's a mistake. It has to be. We repeated her blood test three times. There's no question about the diagnosis. She'll have to be told soon. We can withhold treatment for a little while, but not for long. We'll have to begin therapy sometime during the next few weeks. She's only 24. Who 
Would it be painful? Hopefully not. You'll, of course, want to speak to a hematologist. I can refer you to Dr. Addison. Yeah. What do I do? I mean, what can I do for Jenny? Act as normal as possible. For as long as possible. That's really the best thing. normal as hell. Uh, so I actually love showing this two-minute clip to students because it illustrates four things. Uh, so first, you'll notice that the doctor does not mention cancer or leukemia at all, even though that's what Jenny died from in the movie and in the book, uh, which shows us that back in the 70s, people didn't talk about cancer. You don't even say the word. And in the entire movie, they don't use the word cancer or leukemia. So you can just, the 70s weren't that long ago, and you can see how far we've really come uh, since the 70s, even though my kids would say it's way back in the 1900s. It, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, second, uh, the physician is giving new medical information to the husband and not the patient, which is something that would not happen today thanks to HIPAA. Uh, when Oliver asks what's gonna be Jenny's experience, the doctor's like, well, she's gonna get treatment and then she's gonna die that cancer would equal death, and you would get treatment in between, but it wouldn't work. Uh, and last, like when Oliver's like, what can I do as a caregiver? The doctor's just like, act as normal as possible, which is something that we wouldn't, uh, we would offer more support to people and more advice than that today. Uh, so we've come a long way since the 70s. So even though the 70s had its issues, uh, it did produce two major figures that really changed the way we think about uh, cancer and mental health today. Uh, the first was Jimmy Holland, uh, who was a psychiatrist uh, who recognized the need for specialized psychiatric services for people with cancer. And she founded the first psychiatry service uh, in a cancer center at Memorial Sloan Kettering in 1977. And Jimmy is really known as the founder of the field of psycho-oncology. Psycho-oncology now has grown to have its own international meetings where a thousand people come, its own textbooks, its own journals. So she really started this movement and I'm happy to say that I was able to train with Jimmy while she was alive. The second person was Norman Cousins. Norman Cousins was the editor of the Saturday Review and he later became a peace advocate. And in 1976, he published an article in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine called The Anatomy of an Illness. Norman Cousins was diagnosed with a serious medical illness with a very poor prognosis. It wasn't cancer. Uh, but instead of pursuing standard medical care, Norman decided to embark on his own path of self-healing by taking massive amounts of vitamin C, by trying to de-stress and relax, and using humor as medicine. And Norman actually got better and wrote this article that was published in the premier medical journal, which now gave some medical legitimacy to things like this happening. And this really sparked the whole field of what we call today psychoneuroimmunology, sort of psychology cascading to affect the neurological system, which can cascade to affect the immune system, which then can fight disease. Uh, so he really started that movement. In the 1980s, uh, support groups started to become popular. Uh, Harold Benjamin, who was a psychologist, founded the first wellness community in Santa Monica, California, who had support groups with three tenants that by having more information or knowledge 
by activating patients and by giving them a sense of community, they would actually have better cancer outcomes. The wellness community later merged with Gilda's Club, which some of you may have heard of Gilda's Clubs, uh, to now become the cancer support community, which is a national nonprofit that offers free supportive services to people with cancer and their families. Around the same time in the 80s, randomized clinical trials were now becoming the gold standard in medicine as something that would really be able to determine if something has an effect or not. And David Spiegel, who was a psychiatrist or is a psychiatrist at Stanford, decided to do a trial of a support group for women with metastatic breast cancer in a randomized clinical trial. So half of the women with metastatic breast cancer were randomized to be in a support group and half were in a control group. And he looked at short-term outcomes like psychological distress and quality of life, but also looked at long-term follow-up and found that women who were in the support group actually lived longer and published this in Lancet in 1989. And this really set off an explosion of 20 years of studies uh, trying to replicate this. David wasn't later able to replicate this himself. Some studies were able to replicate it, others not. Uh, but the majority of the studies really weren't able to replicate that effect. Uh, and in fact, a psychiatrist, David Kassane, who's a big name in the field, wrote a kind of funny uh, editorial in a medical journal saying, please stop doing studies like this. The majority of them are negative that stop wasting our research resources and time on this, it's really time to move on. But then palliative care happened. I mentioned earlier palliative care is medical care that doesn't focus on cure, but really focuses on, on quality of life. And Jennifer Temmel, who is an oncologist at MGH, did a randomized clinical trial of introducing palliative care early after the diagnosis of metastatic lung cancer. So instead of waiting to someone might be at the end of life where these services might normally be used, introducing it very early around the time of diagnosis. So randomizing people to that or usual care and found three things. First, that this in fact did improve quality of life, which is what she was expecting. It did lead to less aggressive care at the end of life. And even though this was an unspecified outcome of the trial at the beginning, it was observed that people actually lived longer. So of those three things, which one do you think the press and everyone really focused on? The survival benefit. Uh, and that really reignited people's interest in looking at survival as an outcome again, of doing more randomized clinical trials with survival as an outcome. Uh, but it also broadened our conceptualization of instead of looking just at support groups or psychological interventions, looking at more complex or medic medical uh, supportive interventions that could have this kind of effect. Which brings us to the present where psychosocial oncology is actually a real thing, uh, that it's considered a uh, essential part of quality cancer care. Cancer centers are mandated to have these for accreditation and most major cancer centers have these services. Uh, the goal of these services isn't to cure cancer or to prevent people from getting it, but really to help people through the cancer and to do the best they possibly can. It's delivered by psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and nurses, uh, and there's right now lots of research going on in different interventions to help improve quality of life of individuals with cancer and their family. Turn it back to Jamie. So, Hi again. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the actual link. So all of you said, most of you probably, 
said that you think that psychosocial factors can influence cancer survival. So the next question is how? How, do, how does that really happen? So let's talk about how the mind can influence how someone fares after a cancer diagnosis. How psychological and social factors like quality of life and stress and depression and social isolation can influence cancer outcomes like recurrence and progression and mortality through biological changes. And the biological change I'm gonna spend the next few moments talking about begins with the stress response. And we've heard a little bit about this from Bill. So the stress response is a highly orchestrated, near instantaneous response to stress. Whenever we perceive something threatening in our environment, we are physically prepared to either fight for our lives or flee for our lives. And so you probably know this as the fight or flight response. It was actually coined at Harvard Medical School. So the fight or flight response begins in the brain. We get a message, and I know this is sort of technical and I'm happy to go over this with anyone over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee because I get really excited about this. But essentially two things happen. You have a work deadline that you're stressed about. You are running late and traffic is building. You're taking a hike in the woods and you see a bear. We've all experienced that rush, that fight or flight. And that is the release of adrenaline on the one hand, on the left here, your right. So adrenaline is released, other stress hormones, and that gives you that rush. On the other hand, we have the release of cortisol, which sort of sustains our ability to respond to stress over time, even when adrenaline starts to die down. This response is kind of a prime example of the mind-body connection. So that's a buzzword that's coming up everywhere these days. Let's take a moment, if you will join me, in reminding ourselves of what the mind-body connection actually is. So get comfortable in your seats. We're gonna do a brief imagery exercise. Take a moment to close your eyes, get comfortable, or you can pick a point in the room to focus your gaze on if you're not comfortable closing them. And just take a moment to breathe normally and naturally. And bring to mind the image of a clean white plate with a bright yellow waxy lemon on it. Notice the bright yellow waxy skin. Hold the lemon to your nose and smell the fresh citrus scent. Now place it back down and slice the lemon with a knife, watching as the juice trickles out and the aroma becomes stronger. Bring the lemon to your mouth and slowly bite into it, tasting the sourness of the citrus fruit, noticing the sharp tang on your tongue. Now place the lemon back down on the plate, letting the sourness linger on your taste buds. And when you're ready, Take another moment to focus on your breath and open your eyes. So as you join me back into the room, if I asked you how you felt during that, some of you might tell me you felt relaxed and that is fantastic. It's not the point of the exercise, but it's a win if you ask me. How many of you here felt something physical like your mouth water or you salivated or your lips puckered? Great. So this is that example. There's no lemon here, as far as I can tell. No one's biting into, you're kidding me. (laughs) 
That was actually not planned, but thank you to my husband. Um, so there now is a lemon, but no one bit it. And, but your brain considers as if the same thing were happening, right? Actually biting into a lemon or imagining biting into a lemon. You had a physical response to something perceived in the mind. Here, salivation in response to the lemon. And in the case of stress, adrenaline and cortisol in response to a perceived stressful trigger like traffic in downtown Boston. So the thing that's important about this is that this is a very adaptive response. It has ensured the survival of our species and other mammals for, since we've been alive. But in modern day time, we tend to overreact to stressors. Our bodies don't do a good job of differentiating between a saber-toothed tiger and a work deadline. So we have that, that rush as if these things were equally life-threatening. And in modern day time, the other thing we have is repeated stressors throughout the day. In the past, you kind of killed the beast or you didn't, and you went on. But now, traffic, fight or flight response. You get to work, you have a new project, fight or flight response. The daycare calls your kids are sick, you have to leave, fight or flight response. And so we're constantly elevated throughout the day. And we have chronic stressors, things that don't go away, like cancer. As one of my patients really recently put it, Cancer treatment might end, but cancer doesn't really ever end for many people. So cancer is a chronic stressor. We're constantly elevated in these stress hormones in our body, and it's sort of like a motor that's idling for too high for too long. It causes wear and tear. It takes a physical toll. It's taxing on our body. And actually, we know that when we're chronically stressed, we're more susceptible to things like the common cold and flu. And we can also be at risk for even more long-term significant health consequences like high blood pressure or heart problems. So where cancer comes in is that we've now identified that cancer can be that stressor that triggers this fight or flight stress response in the body. But what's actually interesting is now there's groundbreaking research showing that that stress response can also make cancer worse. So those stress hormones that are released but all of these downstream processes can end up providing a more favorable environment for the tumor, or what we call the tumor microenvironment. So the, the hormones can promote processes fundamental in cancer growth, like inflammation and immune function, and the development and maintenance of a blood supply to the tumor, and um, inhibit the body from being able to identify and attack disease cells or prevent them from spreading elsewhere in the body which we know as metastasis, and that's often the usual cause of cancer death. And this has been shown time, again, time and time again in um, cancer cell laboratory experiments with human cells and also with animal models, and now we know from human cancer studies with, with real people that cortisol dysregulation is associated with compromised immune function and inflammation and earlier mortality in several types of cancer. And two decades of research has now looked at this question. Is then depression part of that stress response associated with mortality and cancer? And in fact, the evidence is pretty consistent on this question, that depression either measured before or after cancer diagnosis is predictive of earlier mortality in several types of cancers. So that brings us back to our question. We've now identified this one pathway by which the mind can affect cancer outcomes. And it's through these biological changes that then can promote tumor processes. 
So then how can we fight cancer with the mind? It turns out, good news, we can regulate our stress response. We can dial down those stress hormones by activating the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the opposing of the fight or flight response. It is the rest and digest, if you will. It kind of helps our bodies return to normal resting levels, get comfortable again, get relaxed after the stressor subsides. Now, as I mentioned, sometimes our stressors don't subside or we have a lot of overreacting to stressors in our environment. So we need to give this system a little bit of a boost, a little oomph. So we do this by things like relaxation training. Um, the relaxation response that was coined by Herb Benson, who founded the Benson Henry, Benson Henry Institute at Mass General. We do this by other more broadly speaking stress management interventions. And we call them interventions. They're kind of like programs. Um, these psychosocial interventions, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, acceptance commitment therapy, they incorporate components of stress reduction that aim to activate that relaxation response. And I want to be clear about one thing. We're not saying that we should just think positively and we should cut off experiences of sadness. We actually want to promote, through these interventions, healthy emotional expression of things like sadness, the normal range of emotion that is appropriate and normal to experience in response to something like a cancer diagnosis. And the emotional and cognitive processing that happens through these therapies is actually stress relieving in and of itself and promotes adjustment. So then we return to the question that Bill talked a bit about, which is if these psychosocial interventions and three, three decades of randomized clinical trials in cancer specifically have shown that they can enhance mood and quality of life. So if they're effective, then can they buffer the effects of stress on these biological outcomes and then on cancer processes, finally influencing things like survival and recurrence? And that is really the question that, as Bill mentioned, it's been a little bit controversial. It's highly debated. We've had lots of studies showing a survival benefit for people who participate in things like this, other studies that fail to replicate, and the jury is still out. We also don't want to lose sight of the fact that even if we don't answer this question, alleviating suffering is enough. That that's what these interventions and programs are designed to do, is to help people cope. If they can also improve survival, awesome but we don't want to lose sight of the main purpose and that that is enough. So I'll end just by saying that one of the reasons we don't have the answer to this question definitively is because it's very complicated to study this question in the context of research that is our gold standard, which, is, which are randomized clinical trials. So first of all, there's a lot of confounding effects. When we're looking at the effects of a psychosocial intervention on cancer outcomes, we also have what type of treatment someone received and whether they have other diseases or comorbidities and other medications that all influence those same pathways in the body, the immune system and inflammation. It's hard to really parse out exactly what's going on. And to really parse that out, we would need to do a randomized trial where we would compare people who get stress management with people who don't and look at, the, look at their cancer outcomes and not have any other treatment involved. And we would never do that because that's unethical. So we can never really, without a study like that, we can never really determine causality and the direction of some of these relationships definitively. The other thing is that I talked for the last few minutes, and thank you for not falling asleep, about some of the biological pathways. Those are intriguing to me and exciting to me. 
and hopefully maybe a little exciting to you, but that's just one pathway and probably the one that we have the least amount of evidence on at this point. There's plenty of other pathways by which the mind and cancer are related. For instance, health behaviors, right? Drinking and smoking and physical activity um, and social support and wearing sunscreen, all of these things that are both connected to mental states and to cancer outcomes. People who are depressed, we know, are more likely to engage in certain substance use, less likely to be physically active, less likely to have good social supports around them, and those are all connected to worse outcomes. And the other thing that has a lot of evidence behind it is treatment adherence. And now you might think, why would anyone not get their treatment? Adherence is you know, our ability to, get, to, to show up to treatment, to take medication. But in fact, because so many of these medi medications and, and um, the surgery and radiation, they cause so many side effects that often people decide to delay treatment or discontinue or skip medication. And treatment adherence is the number one predictor of cancer outcomes. Depression is an established risk factor for non-adherence to treatment. People who are depressed are less likely to take their medication, they're more likely to delay treatment, they're more likely to discontinue treatment altogether than people who are not depressed. So it's important to remember that we have a lot of other ways by which the mind can affect cancer outcomes. That is the basis for our course question. We examine a slew of psychosocial factors that have varying degrees of evidence behind them and their connection to survival. And Bill's gonna tell you more about the course and how we do that. So our course is really designed to teach students to think critically. At the end of the course, they won't have a definitive answer, uh, even though they might have hoped for that at the beginning of the course, uh, for the question of do these things actually uh, influence survival. That the course really is a scientific literacy course uh, that will hopefully make them better consumers of scientific information. We look at both sides of the evidence and see really where things lie. In addition to assigning them scientific articles, over the course of the semester, we read five books together. Radical Remission by Kelly Turner is really our central text. It's a popular book written by uh, a Harvard alumna, alumna uh, that was written for the general population uh, about nine things you can do to help your cancer go into spontaneous remission. Uh, it was based on a qualitative study uh, that she did. Of the nine things, Seven of them were psychological. And as one of the exercises that we do in the course, we do perspective presentations. For each of those seven psychological things in the book, we have one student uh, research it from a scientific perspective to do a scientific literature search and see what evidence exists for or against this. And another student doing a Google search where they're not allowed to look at any scientific papers. Uh, <laughs> and see what conclusions a patient or family member might come to if they go on the internet looking at something like this. And then we see how the two perspectives relate or don't relate and why that might be. Uh, we also give the students some experiential projects where they shadow uh, clinicians, either psychiatrists or integrative medicine clinicians at Dana-Farber or Mass General. Uh, they do a weekly seminar blog so we can make sure they're doing the reading as part of the course. Uh, and they do a final case study uh, paper and presentation. Radical Remission book has a online database connected to it where people can write in their stories of their own spontaneous remissions and what they thought contributed to it. 
So we have the students take one of these stories and try to write a scientific case report about it. We get some really interesting ones. This year we had one about how improving the quality of your marriage could make your cancer go away. Uh, and the student had to try to make as convincing an argument as possible given what scientific evidence there is about that. So in addition to looking at the evidence for and against, uh, or what does support the answer to this question, do psychological factors influence cancer survival? We also look at how those beliefs might impact people who have cancer themselves. On the surface, you might think, wow, that would obviously give somebody help, like hope that they might be able to affect their cancer by doing positive things. However, there are some potential harms to these beliefs. By focusing on cancer being caused by or worsened by somebody's mental state, really puts the blame on the person for developing the cancer or having their cancer get worse, which can make the person feel even worse, but also can diminish sympathy from other people because you think, well, they might have contributed to it themselves, and so you don't feel as badly uh, for them. Jimmy Holland also coined the phrase, the tyranny of positive thinking, that once you get cancer, everyone tells you, like, you need to be positive. You need to be positive thinking. And then when you have a bad day or you're discouraged, they're like, no, no, you need to be positive. Uh, and nothing really makes you feel worse when you're having a bad day and you can't even have those feelings. Uh, and then feeling stressed out that if I'm not always feeling positively, I'm making my cancer grow. Uh, so we tell patients that there's really no evidence that being positive all of the time uh, will help with uh, your cancer outcomes. And in fact, it's impossible to be positive all of the time. And I give the example that it's physiologically impossible to vomit and be happy at the same time. So if any of you drank too much last night and vomited, you might be able to comment on that. But I really do think that it's physiologically impossible to have your head in the toilet vomiting and be positive. Uh, so thank you for spending the morning with us. And we wanted to leave you with some things that we think you could do. Uh, these aren't things that may cure your cancer or prevent you from getting cancer, but are things where there's really strong evidence that they impact quality of life and may have some health benefits. Uh, so the first is try to relax every day. It doesn't have to be a lot. It could even be 15 minutes, but try to relax every day. Stay socially connected. Social support is usually one of the biggest predictors of people's health states. Uh, so keep your social connections strong and alive. Take control of your health. Health states aren't something that happened to you, uh, that you are in control of them. So you do need to exercise, eat well, go to the doctors, take control of your health. It's really positive actions and not just positive thoughts. So you can sit on the couch all day drinking beer and eating french fries, and all the positive thoughts in the world aren't gonna counteract the negative health effects of doing those behaviors. So you actually have to get off the couch and eat healthily, so it's not just positive thoughts, it's positive actions. And lastly, find meaning and follow it. That meaning is what really sustains us through life and life's challenges, and when people are at the end of life looking back on what they've done, that's what really matters the most. So follow meaning and try to maximize your time doing things that are me most meaningful to you. And before we go to the questions, we wanted to just leave you with a quote from one of the books that we read by Susan Sontag, uh, Illnesses Metaphor, that uh, theories that diseases are caused by mental states and can be cured by willpower are always an index of how much not, is not understood about the physical terrain of the disease. 
And there's been so much scientific advancement in the last two decades with cancer. Things are happening that I never thought I would live to see that we wondered that in 10, 20, 30 years, will we even be asking the question, do psychological factors influence cancer survival? So thank you, and we have time for questions now. Move over to the, move over there. Do you want to just? We're gonna to try to look more relaxed and go over to the coffee table and chairs for questions. Hi, my name is Christina Kelly. I'm class of 2009. I was a linguistics and psycholinguistics concentrator and I work in video games and esports, which is uh, video gaming as a professional and spectator sport. Um, now, so the WHO just released this new uh, classification with gaming disorder as one of its changes, and we're a little bit alarmed about that. But I also think that gaming, video gaming has uh, therapeutic benefits that haven't really been explored because in my industry, I see tons of community. I see uh, young people who, have, who feel like they have more of a purpose in life and who feel more connected to the people around them through video games. Um, and also given that there are therapeutic games out there like Super Better and other games that explore things like depression and illness, I was just wondering if any of your research looks at video games and gamification. Do you want to take that since? Do you want to take it? Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you for your question. Um, I, I think it's so interesting because what you bring up is that these therapies we use are so individualized. The same thing for someone that might be so therapeutic, like spending a whole afternoon cleaning the, the house, for the, for the next person is not the way that they would want to spend an afternoon, right? So gaming is much like that, right? For, and we do this when we, whenever we do visual imagery exercise. I always make sure that I understand things that feel relaxing to someone. I'm not gonna have someone who's scared of the water on a boat somewhere and trying to relax in their mind. So what I think what my answer to your question is that um, I do believe that gaming as a, ther as a therapeutic tool can be very helpful and can be a healthy distraction. We talk about healthy distractions as a way to manage pain and cancer-related pain. Um, anything in moderation is not good. Anything in excess, rather, is not good. So we do want to find that moderation. Um, we don't have studies in particular looking at gaming, but we do now use a lot of video tools and online programs, and I've been involved in some research more recently with mobile app development for management of different symptoms and promoting coping strategies and um, optimizing medication adherence through mobile app reminders for patients on oral chemotherapy. So our work in general has started to incorporate more of those online platforms and mobile platforms, um, but our work specifically hasn't worked at, looked at gaming, but I think you bring up a good point that something can be therapeutic um, for one person, but maybe somewhat detrimental in other settings. Uh, so Viktor Frankl has had a big revival in the field over the last 20 years. Uh, there now is a specific type of therapy that's been developed called meaning-based psychotherapy. Uh, which has been shown to uh, really improve quality of life and people's spiritual well-being uh, who have metastatic cancers. Uh, so it is something that is getting more incorporated uh, into uh, 
clinical care. We use the book in the course to, even though being in a concentration camp is not equivalent to having cancer, uh, but looking at some of the parallels of what helps people make it through really challenging situations and what people might attribute their survival to. Uh, but I think since this is an area full of existential issues, uh, the work of Viktor Frankl is very important. Hi, Vera Makarov, class of 2004. Can you talk a little bit about the scientific evidence for good stress versus bad stress? I read somewhere on the internet, it might have been Ted a bit better curated, that actually stress is not all bad if you learn how to deal with it. Uh, so I guess maybe Jamie and I can both answer this one, but I think there's a U-shaped curve with stress that, uh, that you do need some, maybe it's not a U-shaped curve as I'm thinking about it in my mind, but you need some stress in order to get things done or else you wouldn't have sort of motivation to do it. Uh, but too much stress can be paralyzing and have negative effects. Yeah, it's actually called the Yerkes-Dodson law that when we feel a little bit of stress, like none of us would have kind of gotten up here and come here today, right? And Bill and I would probably be in our pajamas and it wouldn't be enough to motivate, but too much stress can be paralyzing, and we've all felt that as well. And yeah, I remember the time that a patient came to me and said, oh, have you heard of this stress?" And it's that good stress, like planning a wedding, really stressful, but for good reasons. And it just, again, goes back to how you manage that, that those stress, stressful events, even if they're good, um, can have sort of both effects, that they can impact quality of life and mood in that positive way because what they, of what they represent. Um, but on the other hand, because they're activating in that way, we just have to make sure that we are using others' tools and strategies as well to sort of dampen down that stress response if we're constantly waking up stressed about this thing that is actually a good thing. So it's a little bit about how you process that stress and what you can do to manage it, even if it's good. I don't know if that helps answer your question. Uh, Cameron Rockstar, class of 1994. Um, you touched upon the idea of conversion disorders and psychosomatic disorders. Uh, as you may know, about 16 of our diplomats who were stationed in Cuba uh, have become sick. Um, and the State Department, these diplomats claim that some kind of sonic weapon were used against them to affect their vestibular system. These diplomats have uh, dizziness, you know, um, and they're unable to kind of walk steady. There is, uh, you know, their plight has been chronicled in the New York Times the past couple of weeks. There's a group of psychologists and doctors who are adamant that these diplomats suffer from conversion disorders and psychosomatic disorders. That's actually, there's nothing wrong with them in terms of, uh, you know, physical injuries to the brain with, you know, any, any kind of weapons. I'm wondering if you guys have followed this story and if, if you have any thoughts about whether such a thing is possible. So I've read the stories in the New York Times. I haven't read the stories about psychologists and other mental health professionals feeling that this was conversion disorder. I can't really comment on that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, however, when many people have exactly the same thing, I wouldn't necessarily say that that would be conversion disorder since it's usually more of a kind of individual interpsychic conflict that we believe leads to these things. So unless everyone was having the same conflict, uh, I, I, I don't know. Do you have anything to add, Jamie? No. No. Okay. Sorry. 
Hi. I think it's an interesting question. Hi, is this on? Sorry, pardon me. Hi, I'm Patty Davis. I'm the class of 84. So many people of our generation um, relax every day by coming home and having a cocktail with their partner. And my understanding is that moderation of alcohol is less than three drinks a week or something which isn't compatible with that. And I'm wondering... <laughs> I took math at Harvard. <laughs> and I know it's, this is probably a whole morass of research on this, but I'm wondering what your comment is about alcohol. <laughs> you want to know the truth? You want to... <laughs> so. So, so we're going to give you very like mental health professional answers by saying it's complicated. Uh, that and it does seem like the studies really change about how much alcohol is moderate and if there are health benefits and how much or how little do you need to drink for those, uh, since they have really changed over the last few years as I've been following that. I also think that for some people, alcohol is something that's really enjoyable uh, in a way that sort of looking at a painting or listening to music, that you can be a real connoisseur or this can be the thing that has meaning in your life. And I always kind of struggle with that if something has meaning like that or that amount of importance in being a good New England liberal about uh, uh, being able to give recommendations about that. However, alcohol can affect people's sleep. It makes you have less sound sleep. It can also lead to mood issues as well. So there are some negative consequences of it, even if it's not sort of alcohol dependence or um, excessive amounts of alcohol. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think you know the standard recommendation for women is one glass a day, and for men it's two. And that diff that's for the United States, but that differs in Europe. And we're constantly changing and adjusting that, like Bill said. Um, there is more evidence these days, especially you know, more recently, we now know that alcohol is linked to breast cancer. Um, and so it's something that I think, depending on your personal family history and genetic risk factors, that you might want to make adjustments if that's something that you're concerned about. But it also might be the thing that one glass of wine you know, sort of takes the edge off of. And it's a pick your poison. Like maybe you're going to be really physically active and eat super healthy, and you're going to have a glass of wine a day. And you have to find that balance for yourself, I think. Um, and that's what we try to help our patients do. So we're not picking the people for questions. Uh, OK, we're just looking around for where the microphone is going. Uh. all the time. Um, our research is highly informed by things like a lot of the work in diabetes, um, a lot of the work that I do that focuses on treatment adherence, pulls on research done by other researchers at Mass General in HIV adherence to antiretrovirals. Um, so we are constantly collaborating with, you know, sort of what we call behavioral medicine 
which is this connection of psychosocial and behavioral factors and disease and disease management. And we're constantly pulling. Another other work that I do is with caregivers. We have programs designed for caregivers to help coping. And we base a lot of those models off of caregivers of Alzheimer's patients. That's where historically the caregiving literature has come from. And so we pull on a lot of that to inform what we do. So yes. Hi, Shatea Whitney. I'm class of 94. Uh, I have a question about uh, the separation of the mind and the body because there's, and it seems like in allopathic medicine, there is more of a sense of there's the mind over here and there's the body over here, and almost like they can influence each other, maybe they don't. Um, I don't know if it's possible to be kind of uh, psychologically stressed and not physically stressed or, or vice versa. Um, is it helpful in your field uh, of what you guys do to postulate that the mind and body are very separate and maybe they influence uh, each other. Um, I'm a therapist and I, I work more in the mindfulness field, maybe with Dan Siegel, where there's a sense of maybe they're more connected. The mind-body aren't necessarily so, so separate. Maybe they're, um, yeah, maybe there's more of a link and it's harder to treat them separately. So you kind of treat both when you treat a person uh, that you kind of look more holistically and that you're always maybe looking at both at both when you're working with someone with any sort of illness, um, whether it be a mental illness or a physical illness that you're kind of doing both. Just yeah, curious when, about your thoughts on it. When Jamie and I were putting this talk together, it was originally like five and a half hours, so we had to <laughs> cut some things. And uh, one of the things that we cut was a slide of Stanley Cobb, who is a psychiatrist at MGH, the first chief of psychiatry at MGH, who was a psychosomatic medicine physician, who had a really, has a really great quote that the difference between psychology and physiology is merely one of complexity that there isn't this split between the mind and body, that everything is connected through sort of different levels. Kind of what we call the mind or psychology is further out from the molecular level, but there really isn't a split, and I think that's how we practice. And mindfulness is, is you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and John Kabat-Zinn, who really brought that into our current culture in modern times, is that is based in a mind-body approach, and that being integrative and holistic, as you mentioned. So that is mainly how we practice in our approach as well. I think this Hi. is our last question. Hi, Christine Kim, class of 1984. So you had mentioned that the evidence is somewhat unclear as to whether or not uh, complementary therapies and the CBT therapy um, actually prolongs, improves survival rates. But you did say, but the point is, is that we're reducing suffering. And that's always helpful. And I'm interested in your personal experience with patients if you find that they are interested in pursuing uh, the complementary therapies and say doing palliative care earlier on rather than at the end of life, given that this, that, that it, if it's just for the, uh, the reduction of suffering, if, if some of them say, 
you know, but if it doesn't help prolong my life or it's not clear that it prolongs my life, I don't want to do it. I, w I would say most people that we see are doing it to reduce suffering. That's kind of the primary aim. However, we are in Boston where there's some very sophisticated healthcare consumers who've read the article by Jennifer Temmel in the New England Journal of Medicine and come with it, uh, saying like, I want this to prolong my survival too, but I'd say the vast majority of people it is really for uh, alleviating suffering. Yeah, I agree. The people we see um, that I see in psychology don't tend to know about the palliative care research or really um, they're coming to us already as a selected group who wants to take a more active role in their, in their cancer care. And I think that's what these therapies aim to do is really help people feel more engaged, more of a participant, so that the, the process of fighting cancer, as some people call it, is not as passive as it could be. They're not often aware of the potential survival benefit, but I always take the time to explain the stress response because it's the rationale for the relaxation response. And I do talk about how it can have downstream consequences for our physical health. But I never say that it could possibly influence survival because, as Bill mentioned at the end of our presentation, it's a really careful message that we want to send people because we don't actually have a lot of evidence for the effects of stress on the onset of cancer. It's more about the progression of cancer that we know. And so we don't want people to feel like they're at fault for getting cancer. And we don't want them to feel that if they don't survive, that it is also that they're to blame. Actually, a patient just yesterday said to me, when I get through, when I, when I finish treatment, everyone said to me, oh, it's because you're so positive. But then she said, I know lots of people who made it through treatment with crappy attitudes. <laughs> so it's, it, is a bit about, it is a bit about the patient message that we're sending and what we want them to understand is this is a way to take control of the stress and feel more effective and have more agency. We don't really talk about those survival benefits in our clinical work. And I also want to also point out that uh, it's not like a, a lot of people are seeking us out, that the people we see really are referred to us by their medical teams, that there still is a lot of stigma around mental health and mental health care, and it's sort of double stigma that you already have cancer and now am I crazy too of seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so there still is a lot of stigma around it, and I was gonna put as number six that if you have any mental health issues of seeking help uh, as, as something to do because there is still a lot of hesitation on people to, to seek mental health care. I just want to thank Dr. Jacobs and Dr. Pearl for, for inspiring us this morning. This is really, really wonderful. And I also want to thank you for the work that you're doing to inspire undergraduates to advance this work as well. So thanks again, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you this afternoon. Thanks. Thank you.